What do we want from the patient-centered medical home? And how will we know when we're getting even close to delivering on the promised redesigns of care? These questions were brought home to many recently after the publication in February of a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, of some 32 primary care practices in Pennsylvania. After three years, despite gaining PCMH recognition, the researchers found no reduction in patients' use of hospital, emergency, or ambulatory, ambulatory excuse me, services, or overall costs, and little in the way of improved quality. So what to make of the findings? We've got an esteemed panel assembled to unpack the research and consider the state of the state of the patient-centered medical home in light of lots of expectations on this edition of WIHI and this particular edition produced in collaboration with JAMA. I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're entering our sixth year, believe it or not, of coming to you biweekly and also for your later listeners listening in convenience. You can find us on IHI.org or on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Even without the specific requirements that must be met to gain PCMH recognition, there's tremendous pressure on everyone involved in this transformation to build a new future for primary care. Are we on the right track? And don't forget, if you like to use Twitter, we welcome that as well. Thanks for using at the IHI in your tweets, and we can bring others into the conversation as well. Let me now briefly introduce our guests, and always a reminder that they have longer bios, all kinds of accomplishments, which we've tried to capture on our WIHI web pages. On the phone uh, in the Boston area is Dr. Mark Friedberg. He's a natural scientist at the RAND Corporation and a practicing general internist. His research focuses on the quality of care delivered by primary care practices and the impact of patient-centered medical home demonstrations. He's the lead author of the article we're discussing today. Welcome, Mark. All right, this is when we call you out. And, uh, Thank you for having me. Okay, Mark. Great. I'm so thrilled that you could be part of this. Dr. Richard Barron is president and CEO of the American Board of Internal Medicine and the ABIM Foundation. He has served as group director of Seamless Care Models at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Innovation Center and formerly practiced general internal medicine and geriatrics at Greenhouse Internists located in Philadelphia. Welcome, Rich. It's good to be here. Terrific. Dr. Christine Sinsky is an internist at Medical Associates Clinics, Clinic, excuse me, Medical Associates Clinic and Health Plans in Dubuque, Iowa. She has served on an expert advisory panel for the CMS Innovation Center's Comprehensive Primary Care Initiative, as well as for the Veterans Administration Primary Care Design. Welcome, Christine. Thanks so much, Mitch. Wonderful. And Dr. Don Goldman is IHI's Chief Medical and Scientific Officer. He has a lot of responsibilities, um, among them identifying innovative approaches and cutting-edge improvements and developments in QI. He's also IHI's keen eye and sense maker of a lot of published research, which is among the reasons he's here with us today. Welcome, Don. It's nice to be here. Okay, great. All right, uh, we're going to start off uh, right away now with Don. He's going to 
just help frame this uh, a bit. Uh, we've uh, the article came out in February. We've been thinking about this, I'm sure, beforehand, but started thinking about it anew uh, in from that uh, point onward. Uh, Don uh, wrote a blog about it. We've got a little video. All those links, by the way, were on the landing page and are on the landing page um, for this program. So Mark is going to sort of walk us through the study, uh, but give us some context and some background. One of my questions is, are we at a point where all the scrutiny uh, actually makes sense? Well, you know, the medical home movement, and I think I can call it a movement, has been with us for some time. It started uh, mainly with pediatrics and then uh, became a staple of primary care innovation and transformation uh, in the United States. And uh, its promise is very, uh, very great. Uh, The idea being that patients need a place that they can call their medical home. Uh, The promise is to improve the experience patients have, to coordinate their care better, to help with both uh, prevention of chronic disease and also management of chronic disease, and at the same time to control costs. And that's a a heavy uh, burden to put on any new uh, innovation. But, you know, when you get this long into the game and where there's this much traction, where we in fact have a system uh, developed by NCQA to measure whether or not a practice has attained status as a medical home, it's then time to begin to take stock. And uh, this paper we're discussing today uh, has provoked a lot of discussion, and we're going to get into some of that uh, in just a second. But it's timely. It's time that we began to take a critical look at what has been accomplished, what has not yet been accomplished, and more importantly, what have we learned so that we can adapt uh, what we're doing in the field to meet uh, the expectations of our patients and the physicians and other providers on the care team. All right. Thanks very much, Don. We'll come back to you uh, after we uh, hear from some of the others. All right, Mark Friedberg, you've got that tough job here of providing a brief summary of the paper that was published this past February in JAMA. And uh, one of my lead-off questions uh, for you is I was curious whether you and your co-authors had any hypotheses about what you might find, um, and did they turn out to be correct or wrong? And that's another way of saying were you surprised by anything uh, you found uh, from these study practices in Pennsylvania? And do remind us uh, maybe of the title. Uh, We've got all these links, but just for everyone, so we're all on the same page, as it were, uh, the title of the study. Thanks. Sure. Uh, Thanks, Madge. That's a great question. Um, So just to start with the the easy part, the title of our paper is Association Between Participation in a Multipayer Medical Home Intervention and Changes in Quality Utilization and and Costs of Care. Um, That was published in JAMA on, um, uh, I think it was February 25th of this year. Um, So getting back to your your other question, which was um, what were our hypotheses going into this evaluation and um, were we surprised uh, by what we found? Um, This is one of the first medical home pilots to get underway um, in the current uh, incarnation of the medical home, and it does have this long history that Don described very well. Um, 
we didn't have a strong hypothesis about what we would see, um, although there were some factors that led us to believe that this particular medical home pilot in the southeast region of uh, the Pennsylvania Chronic Care Initiative uh, might lead to improvements um, in the quality of care and also in some of the other metrics that um, people hope will improve when they think about medical homes, namely utilization and costs of care. Um, the factors that led us to believe that might be the case here uh, were, first, that um, this was a multi-payer medical home pilot, and the payers who participated together accounted for um, more than half of the patients of the, of the um, practices that were involved. Oh, she's just, uh, displayed one of my slides, so maybe I'll just walk through this at this point, and I'll talk a little bit no, about No, we don't mean to rush you. Oh, yeah. we're, oh, sure. we're sort of sneaking no in problem. here. <laughs> Go right ahead. No problem. Okay. Um, so uh, we we, uh, we did not find um, that that was the case uh, in this paper, and I'll go into more of the details in a, in a moment. Um, to us, that was um, somewhat uh, surprising, and uh, although looking back at it, um, both after talking with some of the conveners of the of the Pennsylvania Chronic Care Initiative, and also looking at other recently published medical home pilots of a similar design, if not out of step um, with those, and and I'll talk. About a little bit about how we interpreted that. Um, maybe it would be good for me to go through my slides here, and I'll get right to the interpretation. That's great. Thanks. Um, so just, just as a recap of the article, um, this included this was an evaluation of a demonstration um, that was um, called the Pennsylvania Chronic Care Initiative. Um, we just evaluated the southeast region of that initiative in this um, paper, and I think it's important to point out for folks who don't know this, that the Pennsylvania Chronic Care Initiative had um, other regions as well. This was the first one to go, and that's why it was the first one that was published. Um, other regions um, have uh, different designs and may produce different results. Um, this one included 32 practices and six payers. It was a three-year intervention that went between June 2008 and June 2011. The key components of the intervention were first in the category of inputs to the practices, and the practices received technical assistance from the demonstration conveners, and they also received incentive payments um, tied to, predominantly tied to um, recognition level as medical homes by the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Um, in uh, exchange for these inputs, um, participating practices had some requirements. First, they were required to obtain NCQA medical home recognition at level one or higher within the first 12 months of the demonstration. And they were also required to participate in learning collaborative activities and to report registry-based performance data, uh, data to the demonstration conveners. Let me move on to the next slide. So in terms of what we found, um, we did a survey of the pilot practices and the control practices um, that were chosen by the state. Unfortunately, we got a very low response rate among the um, comparison practices, and part of the reason might be that they didn't know they were comparison practices until receiving our survey, and it certainly didn't have the degree of buy-in as, the, uh, uh, as much as the pilot practices did. And we got a nice high response rate from the pilot practices, and we're very grateful for their responses because I think they were very instructive. So among the pilot practices, there was structural transformation targeting quality. Um, here you see that the, free, the, the percentage of practices reporting having frequent meetings about quality um, went from about 30% to almost 80%. Um, there was a large increase in the percentage of practices reporting that they had a registry of high-risk patients, went from about 10% to over 90%. Um, the percentage of practices reporting that they had a system uh, to, uh, of outreach for patients who were due for hemoglobin A1C testing, which is an important diabetes service, uh, more than tripled. And the percentage of practices reporting electronic prescribing more than doubled. All of those changes were statistically significant. 
Um, I'm not going to display these data, but I'm just going to say this, and this is in the paper. We did not see as much structural transformation in dimensions that you might think would target utilization of care. So we didn't see, for example, a big uptick or a statistically significant difference comparing the pre-intervention to the post-intervention state of these practices on things like um, having expanded office hours or weekend hours. Next slide. We also saw limited changes in patient care. Um, so in the quality domain, we examined um, some HEDIS measures, 11 in total, and we found statistically significant improvement on one process measure of diabetes care, which was nephropathy monitoring. We also saw non-significant trends towards improvement on three additional process measures of diabetes care. Uh, we did not see any statistically significant differences for measures of utilization or costs of care. Um, these findings were robust to numerous sensitivity analyses, and we, we mentioned these in the paper. Um, first, we, we employed a, um, a variety of functional forms. Um, some of this is getting down into the weeds, but this is important to do uh, when you're performing these kinds of analyses, especially for um, things like cost and utilization, which are highly skewed. And I think many people on the call will understand that very few patients actually account for much of the costs. Also, we uh, employed a number of different attribution rules, which have various um, advantages and disadvantages. There's a clear right answer in some cases, and that's why we used um, many of them. Um, we also um, did sensitivity analyses um, among certain patient populations, um, provider types, and insurer subpopulations. And I want to specifically point out, and we, we mentioned this in the paper as well, we included patients um, with diabetes only on those results for um, utilization and cost. So we just looked among patients with diabetes, since that was the chronic condition targeted specifically among adults by this intervention, and found the same results for utilization and costs of care. Why don't we move on to the next slide? So what can we take away from this? Um, first, it is possible for a medical home intervention to have limited effects on patient care over a three-year period. Um, findings were similar to other medical, early medical home pilots with similar designs, and I've referenced a couple of those below. So I think it's fair to say um, it's not a sure thing um, that something that's called a medical home intervention will produce all of the um, hoped-for benefits of a medical home. However, I think it's very important to point out that not all medical home pilots are alike. Implementers are refining their approaches as they go, and later medical home pilots may have different results. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this was one of the first um, relatively large medical home pilots to report results, and um, many others are on their way. I think we're going to learn a lot more over the next two to three years about the preponderance of the evidence. As evaluation results come in, I think we can learn a lot um, from the differences between pilots and um, uh, I think it's actually a great thing that there are so many differences between these pilots, and rather than lumping them all together, I would encourage all of us to uh, really look at what's different between them. Um, in this way, we might be able to identify the best recipes for medical home interventions going forward. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. Don had a quick question. Yeah, I already have a question. That's the way I... <laughs> We're going to do more yeah, questions later more. on, but... But this is a pretty straightforward question. I noticed for the first time, and that's why it's so wonderful to have this uh, kind of broadcast, uh, that the registry function uptake was really quite uh, dramatic. So I wonder if you have a sense of whether those registries were actually used for active panel management, or was it just a checkbox? Yeah, we have a registry. Uh, that's a great question, Don. Um, in uh, the data we collected, we're actually unable to answer that question, even though it is an excellent question. Um, we did a closed-form survey. Um, we did not have a qualitative component to our study. Um, 
others actually um, have done a, a very nice job, I think, of um, quali- some qualitative analysis of the Pennsylvania Chronic Care Initiative Southeast region. I would encourage folks to look at um, papers by Peter Kronholm and uh, Bob Gabay if they want to read about that. You know, well, well, Bob Gabay is actually, I notice, online, and we'll come <laughs> to him maybe uh, later to get some detail about that. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Don. And thank you, Mark. Thanks for uh, that summary. Not an easy thing in uh, a complex uh, subject and uh, a lot more to it. There's also an accompanying editorial in that issue of JAMA. Um, We're trying to provide you a lot of um, actual URLs and links here in the chat, Um, but uh, those will also be on our archive page tomorrow. All right, I want to turn now, well, actually, before I turn to Richard, I just want to actually remind people, or um, perhaps I didn't tell the audience this, our guests have very kindly agreed that if we have a lot of questions and comments, uh, and you can stay past 3 p.m. Eastern Time today, they're willing to stick around as well. That may help us uh, breathe a little bit uh, more on this show today, and um, so don't panic as we move along. Um, we'll, we're going to really try and uh, get to as many, or if not all, your questions and comments uh, before we wrap up today. All right, Richard, Baron, we're going to turn to you next. Got disconnected. Oh, Rich has gotten disconnected. All right. Well, he'll be back. <laughs> that means it's you, Chris. Okay. So, Christine Sinsky. Um, so, you are our uh, – everyone has had, of course, uh, a nice history in practicing, so I don't want to uh, single you out as the only one who knows anything about being a practicing physician. Uh, but in this case, of course, you are uh, partly representing that today as somebody who is very actively right now seeing patients and also have had and do have a lot of experience in thinking at the high level, the national level, about redesigning primary care. So um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, just take a minute and then we'll kind of get into some of the value propositions you think make sense with the patient-centered medical home. Um, As we're thinking about uh, this study today, are we sometimes missing the forest through the trees in terms of what we're looking at? Thanks, Christine, and I appreciate your uh, we're leapfrogging over Rich, but we'll come back to him. Thank you. To address some of the things Mark was talking about, about um, uh, the, the number of um, different manifestations of the patient-centered medical home pilots that there are. And from my experience, the most important thing about the patient-centered medical home is relationship, that it's all about relationships between the patient and the physician, of course, but also between the patient and the nurse who might serve as a health coach or the care coordinator, and the relationship between the nurse and the physician or the care team and the physician. And I think when that triad is strong, the care of patients is really strong. All right, so you you would put this. All right, so walk us through a little bit what you're discovering. I think that part of what we're trying to do here with your remarks, uh, Chris, and have a broader discussion about today is that in order to do certain kinds of evaluation, some things are looked at and some things are not. And then we're also trying to kind of get behind what are some of the drivers here uh, that may bring about uh, some of these higher-level results that I think um, Mark was talking about in the study. So, I don't know, walk us back a little bit. What what needs to almost be happening behind the scenes here? Go ahead. Sure. Sure. And maybe I'll start with just a little bit of background. Um, as you said, I'm a practicing physician. I'm a primary care general internist at Medical Associates Clinic in Dubuque, Iowa. 
And we were one of the first clinics to be recognized as a level three patient-centered medical home back in 2008. And my own um, experience is that the role of nurses is really critical to the medical home. In fact, I'm not quite sure how you can have a patient-centered medical home without a strong role uh, for the nursing staff. Um, In our own practice, our nurses have taken over ownership of all the prevention work of our practice. And they do much of the orchestration of the chronic illness care because there's so much to be done in a medical practice in primary care. And it's too much to be done by just one person. And it's really too important to be left to chance. So I'd I'd happily go through that just a little bit more because I really believe that clinical excellence is dependent on operational efficiency. When our practices are well organized, we waste less effort and we have more capacity. So when our nurses are serving as care coordinators and they're helping with the pre-visit planning and they're helping with all the uh, very full agendas at the visit and they help us with our between-visit care for care coordination, case management, population health through the registry, then we have more capacity. So when we have more capacity, when our patients call in with an acute need, we can see them that day. When we see them that day, continuity is enhanced, our relationships are stronger, and the patients are less likely then to need to go to the emergency room, where because they're not known there, probably more tests will be run. And if they're able to come to see us, they're more likely to come see us earlier in the course of an accelerated illness. So uh, at times, we can avoid a hospitalization uh, by virtue of that relationship with the patient. In our system, we in, in our practice, we like to um, have, uh, say a few guiding principles, if you will. And one of them is at the center of the patient center medical home are face-to-face healing relationships. And I think it's important that we look beyond just going through all the different criteria for NCQA or someone else's recognition process, but we think about how do we build the infrastructures that maintain and sustain those healing relationships. That allows us to move from this uh, reactive uh, model of care to a much more proactive uh, reaching out to our patients model of care. And then the second guiding principle that uh, I really think captures the essence of the patient-centered medical home is this promise we can make to our patients. We will know who you are and we will be ready for you. And I think that's a deceptively simple promise, but it really gets at this idea that we will um, be prepared for the patient. We know who you are. We'll plan ahead. We'll reserve time for you. We'll make sure that our care isn't based on random uh, activities or left-to-chance encounters, but it's organized, it's proactive, and it's personalized to that unique patient. Okay, thank you. Don, you have a question? Go ahead. Oh, I, I did, yes. <laughs> Don sorry. is kind of my co-host here, yes. so go ahead. So, uh, Thanks, Christine. One of the things I've been wondering about is the point of view of the patient in real time. So it sounds like you've got a really leading uh, situation. You've got a great team and you're great promise to the patients. Uh, recently, as you know, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, commented that retail clinics were disrupting the coordination 
coordination of care that was uh, being uh, promoted by uh, medical homes and that this was a very uh, worrisome thing. So I guess from the point of view of patient, are, are, is this a 24-7 proposition? They call up any time with their acute sore throat in, in, their, uh, in their family. Somebody does know them and they don't have to go to a retail clinic? Sure. Well, I think in the best of circumstances, there is 24-7 access to some measure of care. In our own practice, we have a patient services line. We have a help nurse. There are actually three of them uh, that are available 24-7. And so they have access to our electronic health record. They um, can help guide the patient. They can schedule the patient for an appointment to see their personal physician first thing the next morning. So I think that helps to be sort of the glue holding the care together for our patients. If our patients are traveling out of state or out of country, they can always call back uh, after hours to our patient services staff. So I think that's a big part of um, providing the medical home. And in our own organization, we have an urgent care center that's also available um, evenings and weekends. Again, so the care can really be housed within the same larger organization where the information infrastructure is present. Okay. Thank you. All right, great. Thanks, uh, Christine. We'll definitely have more questions to you. They're occurring to me, and I can see they're already occurring to folks in our audience. We're thrilled that we got Richard Barron back after technology took him away from us. (laughs) So you're here, and what I was starting to say was that uh, you have a unique relationship to this Pennsylvania pilot, uh, the research we're talking about today, or which is kind of guiding us. Uh, So please feel free to share that, and my big question to you is what are what do you think or what are you thinking about these days as the best ways maybe to examine and track the contribution of the patient-centered medical home welcome back thanks Thanks, Mab Uh, great to be back and apologize for uh, my disconnection as you said I do have a particular relationship to the pilot and full disclosure uh, I, I was in on the design team really from the very beginning and the, we, it was a very complicated problem that we were all trying to solve when we first started talking about this in 2006, 2007. There's clearly a crisis in primary care in this country, and that crisis has two big sides to it. On the one hand, we don't have the right primary care practice model. The way that primary care practices are organized in the country, most of them don't look like the kind of practice Dr. Sinsky was just describing. Chris has been a national leader in pioneering ways to re-engineer and redesign primary care, but that's not the kind of practice that we have. One of the reasons that we don't have those kinds of practices around the country is we don't have the right payment model for primary care. What we're doing in primary care is paying people for visits, and so many of the value-added activities that Chris described and that we all know we need in primary care are simply not covered by a visit-based payment system. Don said earlier that the PCMH could be thought of as a movement, and I agree with that. And the goal of the movement was really to try to address both of these problems simultaneously. The Southeastern Pennsylvania pilot was a very early effort to do that. I think at the time, there were not any 
multi-payer efforts in the United States of a lot of insurance companies in a region getting on the same page about paying more for a different kind of primary care. And the joint principles of the patient-centered medical home, which NCQA published, were published in 2007 and weren't followed by actual standards until almost a year later. So it's important to understand this pilot as a very early pilot. And I would encourage all your listeners to check out the Health Affairs uh, blog that has a posting from earlier today by almost all the participants in the pilot on both the payer side and the practice side. Uh, the authors are Don Liss, who's one of the medical directors at Independence Blue Cross. Uh, at the time the pilot launched, he was one of the medical directors at Aetna. Both of them were key participants in the region. Uh, and another another uh, co-author is Alan Krim, uh, who was one of the leaders of one of the practices that transformed and also participated in the steering committee governing the initiative. A couple of things I'd stress, and they make this clear in their discussion in health affairs. The first is that the... We made mistakes in how we initially designed the pilot. The fact is that at the time the pilot was launched, I don't believe Don Berwick had already written the triple aim uh, article about how we needed to think about improvements in healthcare. I know we didn't have the national quality strategy defining controlling cost, decreasing total cost of care while increasing quality and improving patient experience as core to what we're trying to do in healthcare. So when the pilot came together, people were actually pretty squeamish about talking about cost. And the original organizing principle of the pilot was to address diabetes quality measures. And as a result, practices, including mine, when they made the investments of resources that flowed because of the pilots, the game we were trying to win was improving diabetes quality measures. We were not trying to address total cost of care at the beginning. It's very clear now, and an editorial accompanying Dr. Friedberg's piece in JAMA makes clear, that for this to achieve impact on cost and utilization, it needs to be targeted and designed at high-cost complex patients. That was not a feature of the original design of this pilot, and as a result, to be evaluating it as if that were what people were trying to achieve is probably not fair to the way that the uh, initiative was designed and rolled out. And the other point I'll make is that a responsibility for measuring quality shifted to the practices under this pilot. The world that we've been living in with respect to quality measures is the insurance companies do the quality measures because they're the ones who have computers and a lot of the HEDIS measures are defined from an insurance company population point of view. But the practices that participated in the program ran practice-wide quality measures, something else that Dr. Friedberg and his colleagues did not look at. They only looked at the insurance company claims data. The practice clinical data actually looked quite different. And the practice clinical data included uninsured patients uh, as well as all of the insured patients, didn't have the benefit of HEDIS denominators for length of enrollment, uh, and so I I think that was another major point I'd make uh, about how to understand uh, this study and some of the limitations. And I think that the way to be thinking about patient-centered medical homes is to 
to realize that we need to solve both the practice redesign problem and the payment problem. And at the very least, one of the things that this pilot demonstrated was the feasibility of doing that. Uh, and the fact that the major insurer participating in it expanded its own investment in this model of care ought to tell us something about what somebody closer to the data than Dr. Friedberg and his colleagues were thought the data told them. All right. Well, thank you very much, Rich. And uh, I appreciate also your mentioning uh, a new item out in Health Affairs, a blog, which is typically freely available, even if you're not a subscriber. We're digging that up uh, right now, and we'll uh, chat that in as well. But uh, that folks uh, can get that even without a subscription. Mark, I want to give you a chance uh, to make some comments. Uh, but, Don, I thought I would uh, sort of help have you maybe make some transition here. Yeah, so this is really a, a fascinating uh, dialogue because uh, we have here a typical uh, quantitative evaluation of a demonstration project by a very seasoned group of researchers uh, at uh, Rand and, and others. Uh, and there are limitations, as Richie just pointed out, in the kind of data they have accessible. Uh, nonetheless, those are the data that are generally used to drive uh, pay for performance in the United States, to uh, evaluate uh, uh, managed care plans, uh, to be posted publicly. How, how do we get, and, and you know this from your time, I think your experience with CMS, how do we get to a real-time evaluation system where the evaluator, such as uh, Mark and and the practitioners, such as your group, uh, can learn together and get a more uh, agile uh, situation in which we can move forward more quickly. That's such an important question, Don. And I, I think that one of the things that everybody who's trying to do this, especially when practices are relying on electronic health records to do it, everyone has discovered that the way in which we are using electronic health records and arguably the way electronic health records are designed doesn't reliably support the kind of work, this kind of work. And once again, it may be that that the uh, problem is in the payment system. They support uh, more aggressive coding by dumping volumes of text to suggest higher levels of care or to document higher levels of care. But the population management aspects of electronic health records are underdeveloped and undercultivated. Physicians who try to engage in a continuous process of improvement discover in a growing and building way how their electronic health record can help them do that. And all of the practices connected with this program invested a lot of time and effort in re-engineering and redesigning the way they use their electronic health records to achieve population health goals. I wouldn't underestimate the complexity of that task, the number of problems that need to be solved to get us to that place. But I think for us to win this game, we need to get primary care practices in it, in a spirit of continuous improvement, recognizing the way that their electronic health records can do this. And as Chris says repeatedly, if the only people teaching them how to use electronic health records are compliance officers, it would be the equivalent of radiation safety officers teaching radiologists how to use CT scans, that we're missing the clinical potential of electronic health records in focusing on the administrative requirements that need to be met to make payment flow, 
another reason that pilots like this are so important, because if we don't have payment models that send a clear message that people are supposed to be moving the needle on population health, they won't discover the potential of tools they already have to help them do it. All right. Thank you, uh, Rich. Uh, uh, a rich set of remarks, uh, Rich. And uh, Mark, let me uh, bring you back in here. And I don't know if you've seen the, the piece that's out in Health Affairs. I have not. So I um, that's kind of hot off uh, the press. But love some of your reflections. Uh, you're in this position of uh, evaluating and you know a thing or two about this uh, field, both of evaluation and also the patient-centered medical home. So I welcome your comments. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Um, first, I'd like to absolutely echo um, Dr. Barron's recommendation to read the Health Affairs blog posting. Um, I think it's a very reasonable, um, balanced, and fair reflection on the paper and um, on the media coverage of the paper. Um, Getting on to um, some of Dr. Barron's points, I actually think we agree a lot more than we disagree um, on the messages um, from this pilot and others um, that have been evaluated so far. Um, First, I think uh, on a very important core principle, uh, which is that we need to identify, and I think Dr. Barron may have more information than the rest of us um, based on his prior roles over at CMS and having a window, I think, onto some really innovative primary care practices, um, it's very important for us to identify the ingredients that are um, necessary and sufficient and and potentially also and actually very valuably um, identify those that may not be necessary um, as part of medical home uh, transformation to achieve the kinds of results that people are really hoping for from a really robust and stronger primary care system in the United States. Um, On a couple of uh, specific, just methodological points, Um, regarding the use of registry data um, within the pilot practices, um, that actually was featured in one of the qualitative analyses that I I had the opportunity to co-author with um, Bob Gabay, Peter Kronholm, Eric Schneider, and some other folks. And um, one of the things we we learned in doing that uh, process, and just also from talking with some of the demonstration conveners as it was running, was that the registry data, so many of these registries were new for the practices. Um, And because of that, a lot of the what might appear to be improvement in registry data at the beginning, as especially these registries are getting up and running, was really learning how to use the registry. Um, There's a learning curve for this, just like there is for electronic health records and many other new technologies in a practice. And being able to distinguish that learning curve from changes in patient cares is is not a a straightforward task at all. In fact, one that we were not able to approach in our analysis whatsoever. Um, Another problem with the registry data from um, an analytic standpoint was that they were not available for any kind of comparison group. Um, they were a part of the um, uh, the intervention itself, and therefore it's impossible to control for any kind of what we call a secular trend. So something that might be going on for both the pilot practices and the comparison practices at the same time that we're not able to observe, but we think might be likely to be happening. Um, notably, um, meaningful use in EHRs and those kinds of things started to hit during this pilot, and that would be one kind of secular trend that it's very important to have a comparison group um, there to have uh, to, to draw um, a difference with over time. Um, on the comment of uh, evaluating utilization and cost um, not being fair, um, I, I guess I would just uh, answer that with a question. I mean, when would it be fair um, in a medical home pilot? 
to evaluate these things. Um, that's a question that really needs to be answered before the results are published. Um, otherwise, um, I think all of us with the best intentions um, tend to have our views on these things colored by the outcomes um, rather than by um, fundamental principles of um, conducting a sound evaluation. That's a very, very interesting point, Mark, and thank you for addressing uh, all, all those comments. And I just want to tell all our active participants on chat and those of you tuning in and maybe listening quietly <laughs> or making some notes, uh, we're going to turn to your questions and comments in just a minute. As I said, we are going to go a little bit beyond uh, 3 p.m. today. If you can stick around, um, in part because we wanted to breathe a little bit more with this subject, we're talking about research, we're talking about studying, and we're talking uh, kind of um, new models uh, and doing the work itself, and so we've, we, you know, we're, we're we're hoping that we can kind of pull all these things through in this conversation today, Dr. Sinsky, Chris. I wanted to just before we go to chat, I think I'd like to go back to you for a moment, and with that last question, uh, I guess that Mark was just asking, thinking about a lot of folks here seem to have questions about what you're doing in your model. Uh, he asked, you know, when will it be fair? When would it be fair? to be looking at costs and utilization. And I wonder if you'd mind uh, addressing that, thinking about um, level three recognition that you're a part of right now. Well, sure. I'd be happy to uh, give that a go. Um, You know, I think Rich actually had it right. We still don't have the right uh, primary care model. Um, And I think from what I've observed in visiting over 50 practices around the country is that even at some of the best practices, we still waste 70 to 80% of nurse and physician work output. Um, And a lot of that is wasted sort of addressing some of the well-intended regulatory and measure development uh, sorts of changes in the environment. So I think we've got this tension going on um, in practice, this drive to improve, but yet sometimes the levers used to drive the improvement are actually making it harder to do the core work well. Um, So I think we have to keep going and measure where we are and keep trying to improve at the same time. Um, And I appreciated Mark's um, really um, uh, humble understanding that there are many different models, and it's good to be able to uh, measure those different models uh, individually rather than lumping them together. All right. I think this is a good moment. Thanks, Chris. Uh, a lot of food for thought. I hope you agree. Don, you want to say something? Yeah, Don's raising his question. hand. So, a burning question. So, Go ahead. You know, one of the things that uh, was disappointing about a quantitative study uh, such as the study Mark led uh, is that it really isn't designed uh, and its charter isn't to look at the variability of achievement amongst the various uh, practices. Uh, 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 Bob Gabe did some studies. He's on the uh, on the line if we want him to comment. But basically, I'd like to know, and Rich, you're in a position, to, I guess, to address this. Were there exemplars where you looked at the data, whether collected on a EMR or by yourselves as part of your improvement, were there exemplars where you could say, boy, we nailed it. If everybody had done what we'd done, the results would have been very different. And, and, and in addition, I think it's a fair question, and we kind of talked around a little bit. When will we be able to say, okay, now's the time that uh, – uh, even EMR data ought to reflect improvement. I mean, it's imperfect, but it's not uh, useless. So uh, are we getting to that point where anybody ought to be able to come in and look uh, across the board and say progress is being made or not? 
your question is to Rich? Uh, well, <laughs> anybody can answer, but it's mainly, I think, to, Rich will know about the exemplars, uh, if there are any, okay. be able to address that. All right, Rich, go ahead. I, I, sure. I, I, think, I think there are plenty of exemplars, Don, and, and I think that within our own practice, there were areas that we were more successful than other areas in. I, I, I very much respect uh, Mark's question about, you know, when is a fair time to evaluate this. And I, and I think that Mark's study has been read um, by lots of people in, in a different spirit and different, uh, with, with different intensity and weight than I think it was perhaps designed or even meant to convey. You know, to the extent that people ask the question, does the patient-centered medical home work, uh, you, you could pose the question, does primary care as we know it work? And I think we all know the answer to that. Um, we can... We can look at the problems people have with access. We can look at what the satisfaction ratings are. We can look at, as Chris is discovering, the burnout rates, and Mark's done work on that too, burnout rates around the country. We can look at the choices that that uh, medical students and residents are making for careers. We have a model that isn't working. And so I think as we are iterating to try to figure out, and I, again, I think Mark's question and Chris's question uh, exactly right. What are the ingredients? What do we need to put in there? Um, I, 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 too, have been working in this area, both in the practice and when I was at CMMI, and I knew a lot more how to think about this when I was at CMMI than I did how to think about this when I was on the planning committee in southeast Pennsylvania, and a lot more, and the people at CMMI are going to know a lot more based on a huge national primary care initiative that they've launched. So, I think we're ramping up here, and I think it is too early to be asking questions. It's almost like we're in a phase one trial. It's can you get multiple insurers and design multi-payer approaches? Can you get practice transformation at scale? Those are feasibility questions. Those are not actually outcome-driven questions. And then I think your point, on about looking within individual practices, what's going on here with a level of granularity, uh, that's not going to roll up in a statistical analytic package of the form that Mark is doing uh, for quite some time. Okay, Don, you get to say one more thing, one and then we thing. should let others no, get in. This is for Chris, because okay. I, I've heard, uh, <laughs> I, did, I did my own little sleuthing around uh, the practices that have been involved in this and, and so forth, and, and I got the impression that for some, NCQA uh, checklist was the uh, thing they were driving to do, and I think that was especially true early on, but I still see it today in, in our own work at IHI. And Chris, uh, I'm wondering, in a transformative practice such as yours, is really an exemplar. Was the NCQA mechanism an enabler, a help, or was it just another thing you had to do because you had to do it? Sure. Well, that too is a great question. It kind of gets at this idea of, um, are the, as I think Mark had said earlier, maybe the criteria are necessary but not sufficient. Uh, hopefully they're necessary and not in the way, um, but I really think that the key elements of practice transformation may not be captured at all in the certification criteria or in the recognition criteria. Uh, I really do believe it's this culture of professionalism, of commitment to the patient, of teamwork, of process improvement that, that drive quality. 
So I'll confess to you that when we um, went through this in 2008, um, we did not at that time need to implement any new processes to be recognized as a level three medical home. We just recorded things that we were doing. Now we subsequently then uh, used the medical home checklist, if you will, to see where our gaps were to try to improve further. Um, but, but I do think some practices have felt like going through the checklist just adds one more set of, um, you know, one more source of chaos. Um, I think Group Health found this, right? When they did their first um, conversion to the medical home, they actually increased the burnout rate among their physicians. And it wasn't until they addressed the culture and the efficiency of their practices and really tried to attend to the well-being of the care team members that they achieved the ultimate goals uh, that they were striving for. Okay. All right. I th- thank you, Chris. That's a, a very, um, you know, um, interesting uh, reply. Appreciate that, Don, all your good questions. I'm going to try and see if I can walk through uh, uh, some some of these questions and comments. First of all, many people are, including Canada, sharing what's going on with patient-centered medical home. Others of you are talking about other accreditation programs. That's fine. Um, we don't mean to imply that NCQA is the only one. Um, it was relevant and is relevant to our discussion today. Uh, um, s- several people had some granular questions um, b- for you, Chris. I'm going to hold on that some about whether pharmacists were involved, but um, here's a question for you, um, Rich. It says that um, you mentioned a different payment model uh, versus the per-visit reimbursement. So what type of reimbursement change do you envision? Better payment for wellness initiatives? Diet counseling, well, B- BMI, uh, I, perhaps you can see this question as well. What, what were you thinking? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So um, I, I think that, uh, that we aren't smart enough to be able to specify the services in a fee-for-service model that would say this particular service given to this particular patient is the one that you need to be paid for. So I think the conversation has to shift from things like, oh, you should pay us for emails, or you should pay us for phone calls, or you should pay us for family conferences, or you should pay us for having extended hours. I think a much better approach is to recognize, to be quite honest, the way that we came up with a payment model for this initiative was we tried to sit down and design what is it that we want to be present in the primary care office. What is it that, what's the capacity? And Chris described a lot of things, you know, increased staffing ratios, ability to reach out proactively to people. In primary care offices, all those things can increase overhead without reliably increasing revenue. And so we tried to build a cost model that would say, well, what are the value-added services that we want people to do that aren't going to change the things they're already doing but are going to be added work? What's that going to cost and how can we assure, what's that going to cost them? And how can we assure them that they have the resources they need to deliver those services? 
and that wound up uh, expressing itself as a as a basically a monthly per member per month payment or a quarterly distribution in the case of this particular initiative and the distribution was based on the percentage of participation of a given insurer uh, in the practice so if Blue Cross was 31% of a practice's uh, population then Blue Cross paid 31% of the agreed upon costs that turns out to be a difficult model to scale because it has a lot of antitrust issues and antitrust problems but the idea that resources need to flow reliably and predictably to a primary care practice. And I think most people think the best way to do it is you do need a fee-for-service component because there are services being produced. You need a capitated payment component because there's a certain amount of need that a population is going to have that can't be tied to any particular visit or service. And I think it is good if you can build in a shared savings component as well because then you're really clear with everybody that part of what you're trying to do is reduce total cost of care. That turns out to be really hard to do analytically at the individual practice level because of all of the variation that happens in utilization among patients. But there are some solutions out there that people are trying. But I think the combination of fee-for-service, capitation, and uh, a, a shared savings adjusted by quality metrics is probably the best we can do for primary care payment models today. So, so this is Don uh, Goldman. Uh, I, I see that Bob's on the f- uh, phone, and I want to have a question yeah. for him. He's not on the phone. Oh. He's not. We're, we, we, Bob Gabay, we I keep, thought he was on the poor phone. guy, we keep, <laughs> we keep, we'll get him over here into the studio uh, at some okay. point. Uh, well, then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say what I think he would say. All right. Because, it's too uh, much. It's too much to chat in, uh, okay. Bob Gabay. He was in our offices recently, and we'll, we'll make sure we'll pull him into a discussion. Well, yeah. Well, earlier. It was mentioned that he's written some really nice papers of a qualitative nature looking at the practices and the demonstration project. And one of the interesting things that he found, he was able to define those characteristics, those attributes, which were characterized the practices that really did better. And there was a lot of variability, and some practices really kind of showed major improvement even in the uh, administrative data. And so I really will make sure those are uh, links are up there because uh, uh, for those of you who are out there trying to figure out where do I start and where are the attributes that make for successful uh, venture, I think you'll find uh, his work uh, uh, really valuable. I will ask Chris, uh, you've had this wonderful experience. If you were advising a practice that feels, I think you used the word chaos, where they're floundering around, they're not seeing a lot of improvement, they don't really understand, and the uh, financial models and the depth that Rich just explained. That uh, what would be the number one? St- first step that you'd recommend? Is it team care? Is it registries? Where, where would you tell them to begin? Chris. First of all, by trying to get the operations as efficient as possible, and there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for most practices, uh, a lot of wasted effort around prescription renewals, about, around results reporting, and I think for most practices, they can save about two hours a day by just rethinking and reconceptualizing those two common pieces of work. And that extra two hours a day gives you a lot of capacity to do good things. And then the second thing I would do is I would get a nurse. 
because again, I think that um, you can't do this on your own, and to have a, a clinical partner, clinical assistant in the work, who's um, has the knowledge, skills, and licensed authority to do much of what's necessary, um, prevents the doctor from having to reach down uh, quite so far in the work that they're doing so they can do some of the higher value work. And as a team, you can do um, collective higher value work. Um, I, this is Madge. When you refer to a nurse and the centrality uh, of nurse and nursing in the um, primary care uh, practice that you're a part of, the patient-centered, excuse me, patient-centered medical home, I was curious whether you're suggesting that somehow that is not as well understood as it should be in your mind, the centrality of nursing, and that you perhaps have witnessed or are seeing other models develop which aren't quite uh, taking that into consideration. So I guess I would say it more in the positive. That okay. is, in, in my own practice, we've been fortunate to have um, five community college training programs that uh, train associate's degree RNs. And honestly, I believe that if we wanted to do one thing to improve quality of care in the country, we would ramp up those community college training programs and make that workforce more readily accessible to ambulatory practices. Um, But in my own practice and then in other practices who have made the investment in some nursing staff, um, they've been able to see a higher quality of care. Sometimes that nursing staff is paid for by the uh, insurer. So Care First, I think, has really a lot to teach us, Care First in the Baltimore area. And one of the key elements of their patient-centered medical home payment model includes Uh, providing nursing assistance to the individual practices for complex uh, care management and care coordination where that nurse is really in the practice, um, has a relationship with the patients, has a relationship with the physician, and talking to the physicians involved in that uh, pilot, uh, the nursing component was critical. So I have thanks, Chris. Yeah, yeah I have a couple of edgy, edgy questions. Uh, one for Mark and one for Rich. Uh, the first one is for Rich. Uh, just fair warning, it's an edgy question. Uh, the, 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 some have the perception that since the patient-centered medical home originated out of uh, primary care physician organizations, uh, that the in the mind of a number of physicians around the country, maybe they still think this primarily is a, an MD thing. And here's Chris saying that actually the pivotal people may not be the physician, they may be nurses, social workers, others, even pharmacists is one of the people ch- chatted in. Uh, do, do you think that that's still a prevailing mental model for f- physicians, or have we moved beyond that in uh, physicians? primary care physicians around the country are now embracing the concept that this is truly about an interprofessional team. I guess that was for Rich. It is, yes. Okay. Rich needs to be unblocked. Demonstrated that more effectively than than Chris in the work that she's done. Um, I, I think that we we have a number of challenges. As I say that, you ask if I believe that primary care doctors around the country think it's about an interprofessional team. I, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question. 
because um, I don't really know how much people embrace that. I do think that it's most successful when people embrace it as a survival strategy and recognize that the best way to handle all the things coming at them in primary care is to reorganize their work on a team-based model, and that that's not something they should do because Don Goldman and IHI think it's a good idea or because Rich or Chris or Mark think it's a good idea. They should do it because it's a more effective way to respond to the demands they face every day. But of course, that's warring with a payment system that nails down individual services paid for to individual physicians. And that tight linkage between payment and doctor, on the one hand, um, physicians build their businesses around the existence of that link, but it's increasingly a dysfunctional link. And coming up with ways that people have more space to be able to build those teams has to be central to how we think, and it has to be central to how we train, and that'll help physicians be more effective in those teams. Uh, I, Mark, I don't know if that's a good question for you or not. Well, I have another question. Uh, wait Mark. a minute, just a second. <laughs> There's some audience here. We're going to get some others in here. Uh, feel free, though, uh, to reflect uh, on that. And uh, one of the things uh, I re- recollect, Mark, we had said that perhaps I might be able to ask you, you did allude to studies yet to come, and I know you can't tell us what's in those studies precisely, but maybe some way uh, as we continue to both do the work and do the improvement and do the reforms and evaluate as we go, uh, maybe some way that we might even navigate some of that um, the the analysis that's yet to emerge. But feel free also if you want to reflect on on, on Don's question as well. So um, yeah, I put you on the spot the there with two. The role of nurses. <laughs> sure, no problem. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, um, you know, our, this particular study, the, the JAMA paper, did not um, go into the topic of the role of um, teams or nurses um, or, or any um, of, you know, the related many uh, important uh, aspects of becoming a medical home. Um, there are other studies that have uh, done that. Um, there's some work, I think, that's being done on um, team composition and how that may um, respond to medical home interventions and also how different team configurations um, may produce different kinds of results. Um, Some of that work is being done in the Veterans Administration um, and and has been uh, quite interesting over the last year or so. Um, They have a medical home version called a PACT um, team in the the VA, um, and that's been the setting for some of that interesting research. Um, Some of this has also been qualitative. I think much like our knowledge of what the most... um, uh, best, you know, the best combination of ingredients in a medical home intervention is at a very early stage. Um, very similar to that, our, our best, uh, our, our understanding on, you know, in a data-informed way of the best configuration of a team, um, and that's likely to vary quite a bit according to geographic area and other elements of context, um, is, is at a very early phase. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I want to, uh, uh, Chris, I think maybe I'll direct this to you and maybe if anybody else has thoughts as well. You're talking about nurses, and you were very clear on that. We do have somebody who's wondering, and I have wondered as well. Uh, any thoughts at all about the role of the nurse practitioner in particular uh, in these models? And I assume you, when you said nurse, you meant an RN as opposed to an NP, but perhaps you meant both. 
So, thanks, Madge. I was referring to RNs or LPNs in the earlier comment, mm-hmm. and I think that um, what we've seen is many of our um, colleagues in the nurse practitioner and physician assistant world are managing their own panel of patients and functioning in a very similar way uh, to physicians in Iowa. Our nurse practitioners uh, can be completely independent as they can be in a, a, a number of states, maybe 15 or 20 states. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think our nurse practitioner colleagues face and PA colleagues face a lot of the same challenges that Rich was talking about. We're uh, an under-resourced uh, uh, part of the healthcare system that's expected uh, on that threadbare budget to kind of save the healthcare system, and um, uh, we need changes in both the model and in the payment, uh, no matter who is the, the person uh, who is orchestrating the care. Okay, thank you very much. There was a question about, and this has to do with um, kind of Don, your some of your issues or questions you raised about, you know, where where what is the data that we're using uh, as we go along? And one person did wonder, Anna, whether um, what the best source of data is actually what the health plan uh, has. And I thought, Don, you might have some thoughts on that because I think you know we're. we're we're talking about a range of data uh, that can be useful. Um, thoughts on that, Don? I was I was going to talk about something a little different, if I may. Oh, you're right. you don't want to you don't want to even take a small stab at that Anna's question. <laughs> In terms of health plan data, is health plan data useful? Well, I mean that's not really my area of expertise. Okay, um, it can be. It depends yeah. on the health plan. Depends on the the data. The, the problem yeah. with a lot of data we have is that it's not uh, in general as clinically rich as we like it to be. And the, the data, and I think Rich referred to it as, or Mark did, it's what's easy to measure and what mm-hmm. they have on hand. And I, I think we could okay. have a very interesting discussion about this. But I, I want to tee this up for really all the participants. Uh, as we design our way towards a uh, evolved medical home, an advanced medical home, whatever we're going to, medical community, neighborhood, whatever it's going to be, uh, where's the role of the patient in design. Uh, I'm willing to bet, Chris, you had a patient as part of your design. Uh, I don't know the extent to which, Rich, uh, in the Pennsylvania uh, project, patients were involved in the design, maybe in the later waves. What is the role of the patient? seems to me, uh, and I got at this a little bit with my question about the retail clinics, it's the patient's journey that really matters here, and either the medical home is serving their needs 24-7, or if not, there probably needs to be some uh, modification or alliance with retail clinics or urgent centers as Chris's place does. What, what, what do you think about that? And, and, you know, maybe that's best for Chris and Rich to answer. Why don't we start with uh, Chris? Sure. Well, I think what many practices have learned is that the voice of the patient really um, transform many aspects of care. If you walk into your organization with a patient and see everything from their eyes, if you bring a patient onto uh, your advisory counselor, your um, into some of your internal committees, um, not only will their uh, perspectives shape the um, programs that you develop, but just their being present will keep you um, focused on the needs of the patient. And, and to, early, to Rich's earlier point about the EHRs perhaps not being really well designed and, and regulated and implemented for the 
patient-centered medical home, I'd like to see us have a um, patient-centered design for our EHRs that we uh, make even our tools be designed to primarily meet the needs of the patient. Sounds pretty good, I, I'm sure, to, to many. Uh, well, well, Don? Yeah, you know, that last point is really important. I, I once had the opportunity to ask the CEO of Cerner whether he thought we'd be in a better place in informatics in the United States if uh, we designed the, the system around uh, a patient-controlled person, or personal health record. And his answer surprised me, given what he does for business. He says, probably yes. And, you know, it, it may be too late to go back to ground zero and say we're going to have a different entirely different setup, but certainly in the patient's journey, looking at this from what is uh, lean consumption, I guess is the phrase I like, WOMAC is called, instead of lean production on the point of view of the medical system, what's lean consumption on the point of view of the patient? Uh, so uh, I, I think getting that voice is really important. I don't know, uh, Rich, in Pennsylvania, did, did that uh, patients play a role in uh, refining the design in the subsequent waves of the project? The answer to that is no, and I think it ties into a point I made earlier that this was a very early incarnation. Uh, I, I think the term patient-centered and patient-centeredness was out there, but how to make that a practical reality, uh, I don't think we'd had the kinds of uh, published national examples that we've had since of patient and family advisory councils, of people integrating patients into some of the design of healthcare. It was done in some places. I'm not going to say it wasn't done anywhere, but it wasn't it, it didn't have as much traction as it does now, and I completely agree with what Chris says. It, it, it's a, a real changer, game changer, to bring the patients into the conversation at the design phase. Um, it was not a core expectation in Pennsylvania, uh, and by and large, the design was done uh, through the Governor's Office of Healthcare Reform and the Chronic Care Commission and a couple of practitioners around the table and a lot of insurance company chief medical officers. And I don't think the voice of the patient was in the middle of that at all. I have one last question. This is Mark, and I don't know if you have the answer or not, but I think it's uh, if, if I were sitting in Washington in Congress uh, uh, looking at medical expenditures and new models and the impact of the ACA, I'd be asking, are there any demonstration projects in progress that meet the kind of criteria that uh, Rich has called for that look at, uh, at data in real time that are adaptive and, and will give us an answer that everyone can look at say, wow, that was done about as well as it can ever be done, and the answer is, do you know of any, is there anything out there we can look forward to? You're asking Mark? I'm asking Mark. Okay, Mark? Sure. Um, So so I I may not be able to actually answer this as well as um, Richard can, but I'll I'll take a stab at at, um, some of this. so there are many, many demonstrations underway. Um, Asaf Bhattan and colleagues have cataloged these, and I think they have a, a paper that's somewhere in the publication process that's a, a new um, catalog of all the medical home pilots um, that are ongoing across the country right now. And you know, it's somewhere in the, the many dozens to um, over 100. Um, and 
the details on those, uh, I think you talked a little bit about um, adaptive design uh, with rapid cycle evaluation informing the evolution of the pilot. Um, that is a feature of, of some pilots. Um, I think notably um, some of the CMS pilots have really, um, you know, within CMMI, um, uh, at the Center for Medicaid and Medicare um, Innovation, uh, have, have really tried to emphasize that particular aspect. Um, and when we think about the role of patients in um, the design of interventions to try to improve patient care, um, I know that's a core operating principle of um, PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Um, you can't get a grant or a contract from that place without um, patients um, being right at the table with the intervention designers, the evaluators, everybody taking a, a, a co-equal role. Uh, and, and that is um, built right in there. So um, I would say... Uh, hold tight to that policymaker and, and wait um, a, f- a few years. Um, in, in most cases, I think it is going to be that long, especially for some of these PCORI evaluations that are currently and, and um, interventions that are currently getting funded um, to start to produce results. Um, but we might see uh, something uh, very impressive from some of them. Yeah, I just want to get, let Rich have an opportunity to respond because I Thanks, know, Rich, Mark. you were at, uh, down at CMMI, as I recall, at around that time when these were being uh, planned and the real-time evaluation and adaptive design was being brought forward uh, it, that, that uh, my own experience is it's hard to actually do that in practice it's it's easy to write about it and talk about it are, are you uh, are you confident that the demonstration projects out there are going to uh, hold to that standard well, there is a particular project that I think Mark is referring to in All Cards on the Table. It, it, it was the Comprehensive Primary Care Initiative that was launched under CMMI, and it came out of my group, so I, I was involved in that. It was deeply informed by the experience in the Pennsylvania pilot. Some of the names you've heard on the call, uh, Asaf Bitan was somebody who participated in uh, and continues to participate in setting up uh, core aspects of that program, Uh, Chris participated in a design panel to think about how to put the initiative together. I think it's the largest scale, most generously funded initiative out there. Uh, It's uh, it's around $300 million of federal money over a few years matched uh, by probably more of private sector spend because it was designed in a way that it had to be multi-payer. And the federal spend was for the Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries in a practice, but private payers participating or private payers operating in the same community, uh, by and large, had to participate as well. Uh, And that's something that, because it was happening under CMMI, had to have an evaluation because all of CMMI's programs have to be evaluated because the whole idea is if, to the satisfaction of the CMS actuary, the program improves quality and decreases total cost of care, then the secretary has authority to scale it up into the payments into the Medicare and Medicaid payment system by administrative action. So there will be an evaluation of that. That evaluation was planned contemporaneous with the launch of the initiative. That's 500 practices operating in seven different communities in the United States with 44 separate commercial and state payers along with CMS. So I'm uh, very much looking forward to to the results of of that pilot, and I I do think that uh, it's as large a scale uh, effort in this area as, as is out there. 
And that'll be a good among the excuses for us to come back to this topic. I'm going to, first of all, I want to thank everybody who stuck around. We're really, we're going to just go for, I think, another total of probably five minutes. I want John to get in here and uh, make a comment about something upcoming here. I have one more, what I sort of semi-meaty question for our guests, and then I think we'll wrap up. John? All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, doing the things doing things the way we've always done it is no longer enough in healthcare, and primary care organizations must learn how to transform their systems in a way that will lead to better sustainable results, meaningful use, the patient-centered medical home, advanced primary care, person and family-centered care, and electronic health records all constitute new challenges for office practices, yet they also present new opportunities. To help primary care practices adapt and succeed, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement is pleased to invite you to our intensive Transforming the Primary Care Practice Program this June in San Francisco. Francisco. Designed to bring together the best knowledge available, the three-day intensive program will guide participants towards exceptional advanced primary care and the meaningful use of information technology. A group of expert faculty will teach participants accessible, continuous, and coordinated family-centered care using a team approach, health information technology, and shared decision-making. Equipped with foundational skills and knowledge, organizations that have the will to change and improve can thrive in this new environment. We hope you'll join us June 10th in San Francisco. For more information, visit IHI.org or email us at info at IHI.org. All right. Thank you very much, John. Very germane coming up here in June in San Francisco. Actually, not here in Boston, but in San Francisco. All right. I have, I think this is what I'd like to do by way of kind of going around the horn and we'll kind of use this as some wrap up remarks. Um, I want to just allude to uh, one thing that was said in the editorial that accompanied uh, Mark Friedberg's study in JAMA in February is alluding to and sort of pointing to the fact that the patient-centered medical home may finally have the most impact on patients with the most complex health issues, also perhaps uh, focusing more on mental health and behavioral health integration. I realize that maybe opens up a whole new uh, wave and topic area, but maybe we could just use that as a way of uh, some wrap-up remarks and what we may be looking uh, toward uh, as we move forward on this. And maybe, Chris, I'll start with you and then we'll go around. Thanks. That concentrated group of high-complexity, high-cost patients are where we're going to see the quickest return on investment from a medical home team-based model of care. Um, I think we can learn from Geisinger, from Caremore, from Care First, where they've really... a lot of intense services to the top 10% of utilizers um, and probably will show a quicker return on investment for focusing on that group. Okay, thank you very much, and I want to really thank you so much for your participation today. Really have learned a lot, and I appreciated all your help in planning. All right, um, Mark, your thoughts at all, um, as the, given the editorial that accompanied your study, um, any reflections at all on this issue kind of going forward? Uh, sure, and I just want to thank you again for including me, and, and also... Um, I think I neglected to do this earlier, but I should just acknowledge the, I think, very um, important contributions of my co-authors on the paper we've been discussing. Um, This included um, Rachel Werner and Kevin Volpe at the University of Pennsylvania, Eric Schneider at RAND and the Harvard School of Public Health, and Meredith Rosenthal, also at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, 
So on the question of uh, the medical home having a, you know, a, a different kind of impact or uh, potentially redesigning medical home interventions to really focus on the um, sickest patients, um, I think that, that certainly stands to reason. Uh, to, it makes a lot of intuitive sense, given what we know about the concentration of healthcare spending. Um, I would just uh, maybe throw out one note of caution uh, on that idea, which is that it, that it is very difficult to identify um, those patients who are going to be your highest spending in the future and are also going to be the ones um, who are the most intervenable, uh, meaning um, you know, they're the ones where you can really move the needle on their spending, um, not looking at the past, but again, at, at the future, which you actually can affect. Um, and part of the problem there is that we know from um, a, a large amount of uh, data that that high spending, um, very sick patient population has very volatile um, costs from year to year that are, that are actually very hard to predict. So there's some real methodological challenges out there um, that I, I hope that we can um, see some, some novel solutions to in the future to help guide the field forward. Thank you very much, uh, Mark, indeed, and I'm glad you acknowledged your co-authors as well. We're very grateful that we had this work uh, to prompt our discussion today. Rich, uh, some final thoughts, and maybe, you know, again, I teed up this thing around complex patients because it was put out there as uh, maybe where, where things should be headed. Yeah, and, and I think I completely agree with the editorial and with what Chris said. Uh, and, and I think that it is, uh, if we're going to show a financial return, it's going to be on high-cost complex patients because there's not enough money to be saved to justify increased investment in primary care and people where the only services they're using are primary care services. And I think Mark points to uh, an analytic challenge, but one that really better not deter us from doing this because though it is, as Mark says, difficult to identify who these folks are, the people who've been trying to figure out who these folks are are sitting in offices in Denver looking at big databases of patients in Massachusetts and crawling claims to try to identify who the at-risk patients are. And I think one of the frame shifts that has to happen is primary care doctors sit with their patients every day, and there are all kinds of tools out there that can be used to identify fragility and complexity and risk, some of which risks, not all of, but some of which risks, as Mark points out, could be intervenable. And when you look at the costs of failing to intervene, lots of interventions that look like they would be cost prohibitive, if they could be appropriately targeted to these people, would make a lot of sense. And to make it less abstract and more real, we know that using antihypertensives in patients with high blood pressure decreases risk of stroke and heart attack. We know that primary care doctors are trained, trained to identify patients with hypertension and make specific targeted recommendations to them. Primary care doctors today are not reliably trained to identify the equivalent set of complexity and fragility, even though tools are out there like the Spigmo manometer and even though interventions are out there like antihypertensive therapies. And that needs to be a major area of inquiry, but it's part of the reason we need to keep moving forward to build this kind of capacity because otherwise we won't have a way to deliver those kinds of interventions. Wow. Okay. Very, very interesting. Thank you, Rich. Uh, and uh, I do really appreciate your rich contribution. And I'm sorry if that joke is getting worn out. 
pretty lame. Actually. Pretty lame, I know. I never promised to be a comedian. Thank you so much for uh, taking part and bringing uh, all your wisdom and experience uh, to bear with us. And final thoughts from Don Goldman. Well, the next time I'll point out that I've got karate squirrels on my tie in the effort to be at least, Lighter. As, at least as lame as that. Imagine uh, I do get along fine. We like to joke. But uh, thank you to everybody. Uh, I, I would like to just close and echo something uh, Rich said, and I think you'll all agree with, and that's that uh, we do need to do a better job of identifying those patients who are fragile, uh, who are at risk, uh, who are likely to fail uh, at home, uh, and to come back uh, with a worse condition than they had when we saw them last time. And and, uh, analytics are fantastic, but one of the things we're definitely losing as a profession, I'm speaking for myself as a physician, is our ability to closely observe and understand what we're seeing when we uh, have a patient sitting uh, in an office with us. Uh, We have our computer screen, we have our data, we're soon we'll have predictive rules, we'll have guidelines and alerts, uh, but really uh, closely observing and talking to the patient and the family is almost as good as the best analytic. I I personally did a study where a nurse at the bedside in neonatal ICU was within a fraction as good as the most sophisticated physiologic predictive score. So uh, let's not lose that ability to interact with, understand the patient, and most importantly of all, really use our eyes and ears and our training to see where they're coming from and what they need and where they're at risk. And again, thank you everybody for participating. I'm really thrilled that so many of you stayed uh, on the line well past our uh, usual uh, bedtime, uh, and I hope uh, that you found this as uh, instructive as I did. Thank you so much, Don Goldman, and I think your comments kind of echo some of the initial comments we heard from Chris talking about relationships, which I think relates very much uh, to your thoughts there. Again, thank you, Chris Sinsky, Mark Friedberg, Rich Barron, and Don Goldman. Uh, I want to make, and thank you for a terrific audience today. Uh, We had, um, there's still about 380 of you uh, uh, on with us, and we had almost twice as many uh, just a while ago. So you've been a really terrific uh, group of guests. I want to also mention very, very quickly, next up on WIHI, the June 5th program, the title is Making the Work of QI Less Draining and More Sustaining. And you will recall that in some of the discussion, uh, several papers I was reading about the patient-centered medical home did refer to upsides and downsides. And some of the downsides had to do with a lot more work, uh, upfront investment, and um, burnout on the part of staff. I think you're in for a real treat hearing about the uh, work and research of one of IHI's fellows this year, Chris Hayes and uh, Uma Kotakal and Julie Holt from Cincinnati Children's. We're going to be talking about making the work of QI less draining and more sustaining. All right. A reminder, you can download the chat and any slides uh, we shared with you today. Look for that option. As John said, we really appreciate it if you could fill out the survey. Uh, We'd particularly like to know what you thought of our going over 3 p.m. We're trying that from time to time. And uh, I also want to do a big thank you, shout out to JAMA, the editors at JAMA, for the collaboration that enabled us to have this very, very important discussion. There may be some comments on Facebook page if Jane Rossner had time to do that. Any questions whatsoever, email info at IHI.org and always feel free to suggest some future show topics, how we might even build on the one we uh, started today. The people who help make WIHI possible are Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, our Northeastern Co-
co-op, Tala Agusain, helps us out as well. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thank you again, everyone. Very, very rich discussion today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon.